into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. This episode is going to have good bones okay. and all, and this is it, and we've started the show. Well, I do declare you look like you was eating a person over there. <laughs> That's really good. Are you eating a person over there? Wow, heavens. <laughs> It's a little softer kind of down here. <laughs> oh, mighty thing to be listening to a podcast all day. You can see a strong breeze past three years. He sounds like halfway between the family guy, old pedophile guy. That's what I was thinking the whole time yeah. is he's doing the family guy pedophile. Yeah, but there's a little <laughs> bit of drunk Alex in there. When you turn like southern and you're like, well, oh. I do declare. So we saw Bones and All as a podcast, and there is a not pedophile old man. <laughs> I mean, cannibal. He's in a bebophile, I would say. He's very lonely. Is and a bebophile? Isn't that the. That's what you Well, she's an adult, though, isn't she? Yeah, but the she's like. She her. looks like she's 15. She's a teenage adult. Yeah. You're just a teenage adult, baby. You eat people because you have the vampire's curse. It's a, it doesn't rhyme. It's a, you're a Justin Bieber fan. You're a Bieber file. I'm Sorry, a bit of a Bieber file myself. Trying to get my joke <laughs> in there. Um, the main uh, thing you're picking up on, I think that this guy does that I do, uh, the evil man in Bones at All, is make up catchphrases on the go. <laughs> It's never dull when yeah. you're with old Sully. He appears at a gas station. No one knows why he's in the state. And he's like, well, you look mighty bored, but it's never dull when you're with Sully. Ain't that the truth? Iconic. Yeah. Did you feel like he was biting you when you were watching the movie? I felt like everyone was biting me watching that movie. That movie's all about watching people bite things. I guess they yeah. are biting. Yeah. As, as we were biting into food. And then they keep kissing. That. And you're like, you just used those for evil. At, How could you let those near anybody? I'm not biting your style, but I suppose that they were biting in many ways, and that's movies are rich with metaphors. That makes sense. It's rich with metaphors, and welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Pod Damn America. It's never dull when you're with Alex Patak. That's right. And uh, Anders Lee. Anders Lee here. We should probably explain what Bones and All is. A movie about... Excellent movie. <laughs> and a novel. That's right. Um... It it, uh, it it's about cannibalism. It reads like it's cannibalism it like, if it was like magical because it's like a curse that people have where they you can like Dragon Ball Z power sets yeah, where other cannibals just, are. <laughs> right. It's about just being born this way as a cannibal. I've never felt smelt an energy like this before. It's so evil. It's about a nice young lady who meets Timothy Chalamet and also this pedophile character we've been describing, and they're all cannibals together, and they discuss how they have like been born with this drive to eat people but what's interesting is that they don't like need to need to eat people because they <laughs> eat food yeah they eat normal food that's important <laughs> to understand they just have a werewolf hunger that not, cannot be denied it's a compulsion it's not <laughs> vampire rules where like they have to to feed they just are they just gotta 
It's like how uh, I use Twitter, where I look yeah. down and it's just happening sometimes. Like, my hand has done it. And they can smell one another. Yeah. From very far distances. That's also weird. Like, they can smell other people who are into eating people. Okay, well, here's... All right, so I had two main issues with the film. And this is no spoilers for it, because I think it's very impactful. Go run, do not walk, to see Bones and All. Everything we've said so far, I think, is in the trailer. The cannibal movie. Don't worry. But it's also like werewolves. Uh, Number one, the whole concept of eating someone Bones and All, they mention many times, but never say how you do it. Is there a stew involved? Are you allowed to cook a stew? Does that give you the bloodlust the way that eating raw does? The whole time I was thinking about Andrew Hillary and his chicken bone, like oh. viral thing that he where he eats an entire chicken wing and not the bite, bone though. like Scooby Doo. Yeah, yeah. Well, he not bones and all. I know, but I was just thinking about Timothy Chalamet just picking up a human <laughs> and just doing that, <laughs> looking at the camera like God. he does, which seamlessly segues into my uh, only problem with the film, which is it is it's rife with Timothy Chalamet overpowering men, <laughs> <laughs> just coming up on them and forcing them to the ground. Yeah, tiny twink man. And it's like in the movie that he weighs 140 pounds. It's like he just keeps killing people. I kind of get it, though. I I feel like you're endowed with super strength if you're one of these people. Yeah, he's wiry. Yeah. He's wiry. He's got those teeth. His whole, if you think about teeth or bones, and say what you will about the guy, he looks like he has some of the strongest bones in the game. Oh, he's got chompers for sure. He's survived only on milk up until the age of 18 or whenever he started showing up in these movies. Yeah. Without knowing anything about the book, I'm I want to guess that it's like a young, a trashy young adult. That novel. was the vibe I got. Yeah, yeah. it and has a just, lot of like, "Would you eat me if we were in love?" Right. <laughs> <laughs> if I had cancer, would you eat me? Like I from mean, dime store '80s book that they just found and put to screen, and because of that, it's very um, unique and artistic and uh, indie. Like, I don't, I don't think that's the case. I looked nope. it up, and the author is like won some awards for the book because I think it's like. Uh, it's metaphorical and about some sort of like, I mean, the word feminist was thrown around in this Wikipedia article I wrote. Okay. I read. I mean, Jeez. you wrote. Oh, I, sure. <laughs> oh no, I Jake can't really <laughs> liked the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Cannot be overstated. But like, obviously, all of that shit was a metaphor or multiple metaphors, right? Obviously, it's not just a movie about Timothy Chalamet eating people. Yeah, I don't think it so. isn't. It isn't like the book is. I think like considered to be like an you know a fucking creative story. It all struck me as very like Cronenbergy, yeah. you know. Uh, but um, but it's by the call me by your name guy, so the sound is too good. Well, you it's had gross. A, <laughs> a really good point about that when we were in the movie theater, which is yeah, I was going off in there as we have discussed on the show. Army Hammer, who mm. was in Call Me By Your Name, is a cannibal in real life. He's a sexual cannibal. And yeah. then he didn't get cast in the cannibal movie that the Call Me By Your Name guy made. He must be pissed. I, I He's mean, destroying copies of this film. I think it's for his own good. Because if he has to do one of those scenes, <laughs> then before He's you know it... He's gonna get carried away. Yeah. They're gonna get some great footage, but... <laughs> Oh, no. It's just like... He actually ate our other actors. Yeah, they, like, (laughs) cut the camera off and shit because he's just... Just covered in blood. You can't do that to me. You can't (laughs) offer me a tasty treat and take it away. (laughs) Yeah. 
But it almost seems like a diss track. Like the follow-up film is about that thing you do that got you canceled. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? Right. Shots fired against Army They hired Jake to write a fake Wikipedia page and fabricate a novel (laughs) just to Man, I said it on the podcast. It's all coming unwound. (laughs) Jake, if you got paid to write a Wikipedia page, I'm charging you double for these tickets. I still got to Venmo the tickets. (laughs) Um, He forgot to do that. They paid me the exact for the amount of tickets. We saw it at Nighthawk. Maybe thirteen dollars, right? At Wikipedia, which page. people outside of New York may not know is a restaurant movie theater. You order your food at the movie. I mean, they have those in many places, but um, you know, when you go to night, for me, it's a treat to go to Nighthawk. I don't go that often, and when I do, I like to get their fried chicken sandwich. I decided to go because Andrews was a good boy that week. Yeah, and uh, Alex brought us to the movies. I did. Very conflicted. Two good boys to having to, you know, watch this thing. While eating a meal, I found myself (laughs) staring at the wall, wanting to cover my ears as the cannibalism was happening, and I have this chicken sandwich in front of me. Yeah, it was very funny watching you. I saw that happening. It didn't bother me at all. I was my burger, watching them chomp on people and shit. Yeah, Andrews ordered the sloppy Joe and just went to town. (laughs) Chicken is the worst thing you could eat. Well, I guess it would be worse if you ate it with bones in it because of all the bones and all. Yeah, bones and all. And you ate a chicken bone. At I was constantly it. checking to make sure Anders did not eat the bones, but I do that every meal. They, it's a fried chicken sandwich. They debone it before grilling it. Well, I've brining it. I've really. found a bone in mine before. So really, I've found at a Nighthawk? bone in the damn sandwich. Are we going to get sued for saying this? You found a bone in the, a Nighthawk chicken I sandwich. I found a bone in a Nighthawk chicken sandwich, which is why I'm calling a boycott of the Nighthawk <laughs> theater until they improve the quality of their appetizings and such that I can watch gross cannibal movies with my podcast friends in their 30s. Well, speaking of bones and all, <laughs> Kristen Cinema has decided to bone us and all. <laughs> and all. I wonder if she's seen this movie. That's why she switched parties. I would guess that this is probably like midnight release Kirsten Cinema. <laughs> like, I think she was all over it. <laughs> yeah, she's very, like, she's a high idea of herself as a bit of a weirdo. Yeah. Pretty kooky over here. I could fall in love with a freak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she announced- America's first bisexual senator, now an independent. One of the, like, kind of metaphorical things I think going on in this movie I, I to me it read somewhat like a um like a queer story like a uh, um, story of somebody who's discovering things about themselves running away as a teenager gets mixed up with an older person who is introducing them to the lifestyle this happens right uh I could see Kristen cinema hanging out with Sol- Sully at some point. <laughs> Wait, that's not the point I was trying to make. Fuck, I had a point and left my brain like a fucking, like... like I think like, both parties are getting too extreme. <laughs> what happens is everyone's afraid to return to the middle where common sense is king. I guess I could see her, like, get, liking this movie and, like, seeing it as a metaphor for the Kristen Cinema story. Mm. Yeah. You know, because she's, like, she considers herself such a fucking... I could see her doing that. It would be a bold move. It, I can't imagine it be, uh, paying off for any politician to acknowledge this movie or say they enjoyed it. <laughs> Not that it's a bad movie, but... but it, may, it might ruin your career, yeah. actually, to even mention it. But she is bold enough to do that. She'll... she'll Let me be clear. <laughs> I like the film. <laughs> she's kind of 
flouting the whole politician idea because like she um does all the stuff you're supposed to do to the extreme as, as like triangulation and playing the the game and you know even for no benefit really she's not enriching herself she's just being a nuisance and helping uh the lobbyist class without really getting a job as a lobbyist because everyone hate is going to hate her uh after she's out of office but um so she does that very well but then does all the stuff you're not supposed to do you know like be an eccentric uh weirdo right, right? she she had a Earrings that said "fuck off," you know. Senators aren't supposed to do that. Yeah, that's a bit explicit for control. class. Whoa. Yeah, take those off in class. Right. So By I could class, see her. I mean, the United States Senate. I could see her talking about this movie, maybe in her speech, announcing <laughs> her next Senate campaign or something. And uh, I love my constituents things. so much I want to eat them bones and all. <laughs> Did anybody else see that movie? I mean, Gad Zooks. <laughs> Um, that, like that, that could happen potentially in politics as like a really, really, really badly thought out misfired Pokemon goes to the polls kind of thing. Uh-huh. Some focus group happens and some politician thinks that this is the hot new film that all the youths enjoy. And then they, you know, they go, well, this is all I'll get them. Sometimes when I'm up on Capitol Hill, I feel a bit like Deadpool 2, my favorite movie. <laughs> Um, That's why it's <laughs> never dully when you're with <laughs> Beto O'Rourke. <laughs> Thanks, kids. You're such beautiful hair. <laughs> I could smell you from the lawn. Uh, what does it actually mean practically that she switched her party affiliation? So she's not a Democrat anymore. She's an independent. Right. She's going to, as far as I know, caucus with the Democrats. Like okay. Bernie Sanders and Angus King do. Um, but she is... This is, I think, a very shrewd calculation because right now there are polls between her and a guy, I think he's a congressman, Ruben Gallego. Um, Could be saying that wrong, sorry. But he's Arizona Democrat who um, is thinking about running in 2024 for Senate against her in the Democratic primary and right now is crushing her in the polls, like 50, 20 to 50 points. Yeah. Somebody beating Daria... (laughs) It's Trent. (laughs) So she's going to get... Actually, it's Butthead would be like her... I guess that's her. She would be like Butthead? I'm trying to think of who Daria's arch nemesis is. Oh, okay. Uh, Mr. Um, Whoever the teacher is. Oh, it's Mr. DiMartino. Hell yeah. Yeah. That's how we take down Kristen Cinemas. We need a Mr. DiMartino politician. In order to defeat Daria, you must summon a DiMartino. <laughs> Guy Which is like, the only way. <laughs> there, has there been a, like, a, like an angry politician lately who has one huge throbbing eyeball that's bigger than the other one? <laughs> I mean, cool. we'll... I think uh, Ruben will have to invest in this. Maybe some um, cosmetic surgery to make this happen and clinch this thing. You could just see because, a shocking event with one eye and that would organically open it. Yeah. I'm so, running because my freaking ex-wife. <laughs> yeah, you know. So he's gonna win. <laughs> oh, Jake! I heard my throat. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> Mr. DiMartino. So it's a comic strip. You don't even know what he's asking. <laughs> oh, it's a cartoon. Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I know nothing about Daria. My ignorance speaks for me. Anders, what were you saying? He's gonna win the Democratic nomination in Arizona, barring some miracle. I mean, now I don't think she's even gonna run for it. What she is gonna do is run for re-election. As an independent, she's going to say to the Arizona Democratic Party, 
you can endorse me like Vermont does Bernie Sanders, uh, or you can nominate this guy and risk throwing this thing to a Republican because she's going to split the vote. I can be your angle or your devil. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Will this pay off? Who's, I don't know, because um, maybe, maybe this is a good way to get reelected. Or maybe it's a great way to, to elect a Republican in Arizona, or maybe, hopefully, she'll just get washed in the general election because the Democrats hate her. And I can't imagine that many Republicans in Arizona like her either. I was about so, to say, I feel like a primary election is a safer bet for you, even even if all of the Democrats hate you, just because we are naturally dogs and we'll uh, form well, up yeah. to take the safe bet every time. I mean, I think, I think though... The writing's on the wall for that, um, but I, there is a good chance that she will be able to make the case, and this is you know through a threat basically that like you know look at the, look at what's going to happen the, in the general election. If I'm the independent, you have a Democratic uh, nominee running and a Republican. Um, we're going to split and go the Republican. So you better endorse me uh, without going through the process of nominating me. Uh, I think is what she's going to try to do. Right. Um, so she can basically she's out maneuvering the left right now. Um, if you could, really love me, Democratic Party, you will eat me. <laughs> or you will eat with me. Yeah. Together, which is an intimate act. But hopefully there are not enough. And it's Arizona. I don't know Arizona super well, but maybe there are enough weirdo, moderate independents who are like, this gal's got the right idea. Let's vote her back in. Just socially, if we ate a guy together, would you feel weird cleaning off next to me, or would you just feel it would be like a guy's locker room? No big deal. We can all clean off together. Because I, mean, I might need privacy for that. We would have to strip down to our old man tidy whities <laughs> in order to chow down on a dead hobo together, right? You're not going to want to get that on your dress shirt, Jake. <laughs> It's a sticky affair. So Not unlike mean. United States politics, folks. <laughs> Stay tuned. Yeah, I, I think at that point, I wouldn't, you know, all that stuff's out the window. We've all seen... I'm mostly asking Anders. I feel like it may come up in our future together. <laughs> would I clean... Yeah, I would clean up. At that point, yeah, we've just eaten a guy. I'm not asking if care. you clean up. I'm just seeing if you have to go you, in yes. another room or if we could hang out. We could hang out. I would need to hear help. Probably. All right, yeah. I was, uh, socialism is about helping your fellow man. Um, would you make a chain of ponytails with me? <laughs> well, then we are getting to spoilers now, and that's not what this show is about. That's a, it, it didn't. It's not part of the plot, really. It's very weird. I, here's something I thought about. Does does he only eat people with ponytails? Like, it does seem like that. Because I was thinking if you eat like Anders right now, like if we both ate Anders, I would not be able to fashion his scalp into a ponytail. It yeah. couldn't be done. <laughs> he has a new sexy haircut and it's too short. And we're all saying it. It could just be a really short ponytail. How would I turn that into a ponytail? Your hair is like one inch long. <laughs> yeah, just leave one inch where the ponytail would be. <laughs> I guess. That's no good. Yeah, I'd have to just like, uh, when I have my chain of scalps, like really like bring out the one inch and be like, hey, this one was Anders. It's yeah, not yeah. in a lot of room. But that sucks. <laughs> it doesn't add anything to the chain. It ruins hair. my presentation for one. Yeah. That's what this campaign's all about. And that's about. what this campaign's so, all about. Um, How do I segue into this? Uh, 
You're the master. You know what Let him Kirsten Cinema is going to end up doing? And this is a prediction. If she's not reelected to the Senate, I think she will be president of the new school. Huh. I'm calling it now. From Arizona. Yes. Commuting in. She's going to move. She's going to love Manhattan. Are you kidding? Yeah, she is maybe one of the most Manhattan individuals. This is going to be her town. <laughs> <laughs> um, this actually makes it. So they, they, in the early 2000s, they had a president named Bob Carey. You guys know about this guy? Former mm. U.S. Senator from Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is an Anders guy. You tell me about him. Uh, Bob Carey. Well, I'm very opposed to you Bob didn't Carey. Have a, you didn't have a poster on your wall of Bob Carey growing up? I did of John Kerry. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> did you really? What? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> how did I fish that out what of you? It was, more, it was more like we went to a rally <laughs> in 2004 and I kept a sign. And okay. then my mom helped me clean my room and was like, you need something on your wall. And <laughs> You're a Kerry guy, right? <laughs> I at, at 13, I was for a few months there. See, that's mostly really your dumb. mom's fault, though, because when you can put a John Kerry sign on any 13 year old's wall if you're persuasive enough. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> 2004. I mean, this was like I had it up in like 2007. I was even I was not even a fan. What could have been? Yeah, it, it it was yeah sort of it became he, ironic at he, a certain point. He was one of our braver boat captains in Vietnam. He was a skeptic of the and is a skeptic of the official story as R E J F K. But that's story for another day. The um, new school. The new school. They had this guy Bob Carey, former senator from Nebraska, Vietnam veteran like the other Carey, also a supporter of the war on terror, and was. Um, there was a vote of no confidence for the faculty, and his tenure was just marked by uh, uh, tension between like faculty and administration. And by the time I got there, um, he was out, but was still getting like a million dollars a year as part of his contract. Oh wow, he must have um, done a good job. Uh, yeah, I mean, this gives you an idea. And he also had John McCain give a commencement speech <laughs> at like this school that's founded by anarchists yeah john mccain just up there saying slurs yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of blue hairs here tonight i guess i shouldn't should have not seen that coming yeah so Some pieces of shit <laughs> <laughs> so i have to preface every time i mention that i went to the new school this is my middle class uh sort of guilt receptors being activated i need i have like a compulsive like eating people need uh-huh. cannibalistic style need sure. to sandwich in there that I went to community college first. I just like, sure. it's a compulsion. No one really cares. I like to sandwich distinction. There. Yeah. Um, Catch my drift, pal. <laughs> I've got a compulsion. I'd like to turn you into a sandwich, we're saying. But I did go there for two years, and by the time I was there, it was David Van Zant was the president, and um, they, were, they built this huge building on uh, 5th and 14th that they didn't need. Mm-hmm. People were saying, we don't need you to do this. Uh-huh. They built this strange um, behemoth that looks like it's made out of Legos, if you ever walk past it. Oh, um, is this the building that has, like, dents in the side of it? Yeah. Okay, I always think it looks like Godzilla swiped his hand down the building. <laughs> this is one of... I, I actually do like this one. I think I mean, it's crazy looking. Knowing them, I'm sure they made that happen. They're like, this can't... We can't... We need it to be an authentic swipe. You okay. can't design that in there. We need to acquire a beast. <laughs> 
this is going to cost $3 It's a bit more expensive, yeah. sure. And then my bourgeois aesthetics draw me to it right away, knowing it could be Godzilla. Right. Oh, uh, boy. Well, okay, so their, their teachers are on strike or something. We're not yeah. just randomly talking about the new school this right. week. Right, they are, um, this is an, they're in negotiations right now. The administration has announced they've dangled a little carrot. They're saying they're going to um, acquiesce to the pay demands. We'll see if that sticks. But uh, basically, tuition has been going up and up and up for a generation. And nobody really knows where the money is going. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly that thing in the side of the building to make it look like a Godzilla. Yeah, <laughs> it's mostly building. going to a mechanical Godzilla <laughs> who, who gets paid for architecture jobs. Yeah, it's mechanical Godzilla is Mecha Godzilla. Okay, go on. Right. That's correct. And they just they've justified this by like, hey, we're just doing what other schools are doing. It's this strange paradox where they they find these rationalizations um, in the market for education. Like, we have to do this to, to stay competitive, and we have to keep cutting pay for adjuncts and staff and faculty. Um, and so now it's reached a point where. Um, faculties on strike. Uh, if you're a student, you should um, strike in solidarity as well. Um, in that, also, if you're a, an artist or an academic who has been invited to do anything at the new school, you should um, not do it, and you should sign a petition. You should maybe pee on the building. Yeah, not a petition, but a, a pledge to uh, boycott. Um, but right now, there's a professor. Bottle your farts and throw them at people. There's a professor, Sanjay Reddy, who is an economics professor at the New School, who wrote this um, kind of quick paper or, or like document, really, um, just talking about like what the New School can't afford and saying like the, these their rationale is bullshit. They can absolutely afford to give faculty and staff more money, um, and they don't have to raise tuition because this school has an endowment, like most schools, uh, which is just a pot of money that goes into God knows what, um, that they have trustees for, and these trustees are like captains of industry and shit who sit on this board and put tuition money into this pot and then take it back themselves, and maybe some of it goes to the school. It's hard to tell. Um, So they, the new school, which I don't know who is running their Twitter right now. um, Uh... That is also me. It's, it's, it's the same people that paid me to rewrite that Wikipedia article. Yeah. I mean, they owe him $13, but it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> they don't have it right now. It's, it's kind of amazing that they're like tweeting out. They're just, they don't have to do this. I don't know why they're deciding to say, like, yep, yeah, we can't afford to give people like benefits. We're going to be cutting uh, healthcare and benefits for people who are on strike right now. Like, they, why mention it at all? Like, why publicly say this? But they um, replied to a tweet through the official New School account, um, and they said, we have reviewed Professor Sanjay Reddy's paper. The university wants the community to be aware that this paper includes information that is misleading or incorrect. Um, so they go out of their way to reply to a professor... At their own school, which is... That's messy. Yeah. Um, and then he comes back two hours later and shows that there's numerous errors of fact and reasoning 
and that I mean, there's a lot of minutia to dig into. But the main problem is they're they're saying like, look, we're um, paying at a better rate, or our costs are uh, we're cutting costs at a lower rate than like Harvard, or they're they're basically taking the numbers, taking everything, and and doing a one to one comparison with. Harvard, which is a much larger school with a much larger endowment um, and trying to justify things that way, which is just absurd. And so he wrote a response to the response and they have yet to yet to reply. Um, but yeah, that goes to show what these people are are stooping to and um, they should absolutely be, be thrown out. And uh, yeah, it's just kind of amazing how it's been little over a hundred years that this thing has been a new school and uh, it has continued to get newer. Debatably a medium age school at this point. It's not so new anymore, is it? Well, they, I think that's part of the the strategy because they're like, we need, if it's going to stay new, then we have to completely change everything that the school is about. (laughs) We'd have to fire everyone here. This kind of reminds me of is how, um, what's it called? Uh, Mother Jones is called Mother Jones. And you go like, what the fuck? Why, how did you start off yeah. named after an anarchist lady? And mm-hmm. then uh, now you suck. But uh, also not to like jump ahead, but I, I mean, it's a good point. You brought up this thing where like the, the school is um, sort of like f- putting on this face. Like it has like, uh, and it, like it needs the money, right? Like it's being crunched and in fact has an endowment because there's a parallel there in what's going on with like the rail strike yeah, where yes. the whole conceit that's being fed to everyone through corporate media is that like the workers did this and they put this, uh, you know, they cause they're causing this situation where there's going to be this strike that's going to ruin Christmas. And uh, there actually used to be a booming, you know, sort of like industry of railroads and shit in this country. Uh, I think the statistics, if I remember correctly from this thing I just listened to, were like um, uh, there were like half a million rail workers in like the 80s or something like that, and it's down to about uh, 130, uh, what do you call it, 1,000? Not to mention there's a war on Christmas. Because of massive cuts and stuff that happened, like, that were caused by the, the owners, right? And mm-hmm. it, ultimately, if you look at the big picture here, you have... Warren Buffett, the sixth richest man on earth, you know, who owns a lot of this shit, trying to tell you this thing he owns is, oh, it's going to run out of money. And it's like, well, where'd all the fucking money go? Yeah. You know? And, uh, you know, he he's a, he, well, he says he's a philanthropist. It's like, where do you even get money to be a philanthropist, pal? Does this yeah. make any sense? Yeah, it's kind of amazing how he's, like, sucking money and life out of his employees and then kind of um, trusting himself to redistribute it to other. Here's what I'm getting at, I guess, is that uh, you see this over and over again in these like situations where we get to labor disputes, where the boss is going to try to sell you a very closely cropped image of the story, which is implying that they are, uh, you know, there's nothing they can do. They're running out of money, right? They're being crunched by somehow by the workers unfairly demanding, uh, you know, stuff that's fucking normal, like sick days and stuff like that. And uh, the the big picture is that the situation that's happening that led to like a like a strike or whatever like that, or like a situation where workers feel like they need to strike happened because of all these capitalist dynamics that are happening because of capitalism where they're 
extracting extra, extra shit out of people and cutting all sorts of things and creating these like impossible situations. So that's the lesson here. Right. And that's, it's weird because new school is like this fucking crazy hippie situationist thing where you could go major in situationism or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. but uh, it's still functioning according to capitalism because it's a school in America. Yes. You can, you can major in turning bones into a stew. That's right. What Jake is getting to here is the executive class in this country is, if you'll pardon my saying, off the damn rails right nice. now. And that's something we're looking into today for this great episode of Pod Damn America podcast. That's right. We uh, have someone to discuss the rail situation as well as some other labor struggles going on in the country. Um, Max Alvarez, returning champion. We'll go to that interview right now. Uh-huh, honey. Three, two, <laughs> one. We are now joined by Maximilian Alvarez, returning guest. Max, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Great to be back. Yeah, and a lot of ground to cover today. A lot of happenings in the labor world. But let's start with uh, yesterday at this point. There was a work stoppage at the New York Times. Uh, readers everywhere were asked to not uh, open their newspapers, let them sit on the, the front stoop not visit the webpage, and uh, several employees did not go to work. Um, not all of them, unfortunately. Um, but w- let's start with the News Guild East, which called for this. Um, what led to this point, and uh, is there a chance that things will escalate from here? You know, it's um, it's an interesting question because um, I've been trying to sort of catch up on this story as much as I can over the past 24 hours because um, I know we're going to also talk about the railroads in a bit. And I've just been so consumed with with that um, that I've been really leaning on the reporting of other folks for this. And we actually have uh, a piece going up at The Real News um, today. We're recording this on Friday from the great Teddy Ostro. Um, kind of reporting on the New York Times one day strike that you mentioned happened yesterday on Thursday. <clears throat> and, you know, my my understanding, you know, of what sort of led us to this point is it's it's curious, right? Because, uh, you know, they, they are not the only newsroom on strike, um, as we well know. In fact, um, there, there are other uh, kind of newsrooms right now um, that are on strike, including uh, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, who have been on strike for, I believe, over seven weeks now. Um, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram uh, in Texas is on an open-ended newsroom strike, so sending love and solidarity to all those folks. Um, but the New York Times is kind of in a an interesting position within this kind of labor unrest in the media world right um you know as we know the new york times is in the paper of record uh even if the journalism industry is uh not doing so hot right now the new york times is still quite profitable and um i believe they reported over 36 million dollars in profit in the third quarter of this year alone and and so like one of the kind of rallying cries that i've been hearing from folks with the with the news guild or the times guild uh is that you know workers are really you know pissed off because there's there's a lot of different folks at an organization like uh the new york times right i mean i've gotten 
to see some of that. Um, you know, before I was at the Real News Network, I was uh, an editor at the Chronicle of Higher Education down in D.C., uh, which is like, you know, not as big as the New York Times, but it's like a similarly uh, kind of set up organization. It felt like walking into like a Google office, right? There's so many different departments, so many different folks like um, copy editors, fact checkers, interns, photography, photographers, photography editors. There's a whole lot of people behind the scenes. Uh, it's not just, you know, fucking uh, uh, Brett Stevens, <laughs> and like a uh, little little shitbag, uh, high overpaid uh, columnist. And, and that's another part of the dynamic is that like so much of the public ire is directed at the big profile columnists, uh, some of whom uh, were, were crossing the picket line like the fucking scabs that they are uh, yesterday. But um, there's actually a whole lot of other people who do a lot of other vital work um for uh, a publication like the new york times and i think like the public can easily sort of lump those two things together but what we saw yesterday was i think a really uh impressive show of solidarity with um over a thousand folks uh walking out i believe this is like the the largest kind of um walkout action that that paper has seen since like the 1960s um and as i said you know like with um the journalism industry not necessarily doing all that well, but the New York Times recording, uh, you know, tens of million dollars of profit. Um, you know, workers have been pointing to the fact that, you know, their employer pledged like one hundred and fifty million dollars in stock buybacks and, and you know, ramped up executive pay by like 30 percent in the past year while refusing to kind of meet what I think are the very reasonable kind of wage demands <laughs> that workers are uh, offering because I believe, um, you know, they haven't seen raises since 2020. As we know, uh, inflation has gone gangbusters since then. And so when management proposed like uh, like less than 3% uh, annual salary increases for the life of the new contract, it would effectively amount to a wage cut. And we're still talking about New York City, where you guys are. How, how's, the, how's the cost of living in New York City? You tell me. It's not going down. That's for sure. Crime is out of control. I live in a really nice train car. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 yeah, like, like we're all just sort of like living in the sewers like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles while, you know, the executives at the New York Times and the shareholders are, you know, getting paid handsomely. And so this is like partially what connects, I think, the New York Times uh, one day strike to a lot of the other uh, struggles that we're seeing. I mean, the largest strike. Uh, still going on in the country are tens of thousands of academic workers at the University of California who are similarly demanding, uh, you know, adequate pay for the work that they do because so many um, academic workers, um, graders, people, uh, graduate students, you know, teaching classes, research assistants, so on and so forth. I mean, they make these universities run and many of them can't even afford to live in the damn cities where their universities are located. Like people are driving like two or more hours into um, class uh, if they, you know, teach at UCLA because it's just so fucking unaffordable. And yet the university has been stonewalling them on their wage demand, so on and so forth. Same with the the railroads, right? These companies are, are raking in uh, record profits, billions and billions of dollars spent on stock buybacks and shareholder dividends. So it feels like there is a kind of like very clear through line, you know, of like 
class antagonism um you know with these with these strikes in in very different types of industries but to 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 kind of sum up and then I'll then I'll shut up um you know I think that the cost of living and um you know uh, increasing wages to keep up with inflation um setting at least like a $65,000 a year wage floor for for guild members um because there's so much disparity uh, in the ways that that people get paid at papers like these depending on the work that they do the department that they're in um their status with the the publication so on and so forth um but you know there are also uh, other kind of demands that that I've been kind of reading about and seeing people post about, um, you know, including like improvements to the New York Times healthcare plan, um, and uh, uh, as well like uh, a big sort of sticking point that I've seen, um, you know, has to do with the pension plan. Uh, the New York Times does still have a pension plan, not just a a four hundred one. K and so people have been, uh, you know, really trying to uh, uh, make demands there and uh but there's also you know like uh kind of human resources questions i mean the times guild conducted its own analysis earlier this year uh, and it kind of made headlines um when the the analysis showed that you know across the board uh black and latino workers um have like a statistically uh a, a less like a statistically harder time um getting kind of higher job ratings during their annual reviews. So, I mean, like you also have people who were pissed off about like, you know, just blatant racism going on within the walls of the New York Times. So there's a lot of stuff going on here. Um, you know, like I said, the New York Times is uh, um, bringing in profits at a time when a lot of other news outlets aren't. And a lot of outlets are already sort of preparing for, uh, a recession. Um, CNN just laid off a whole buttload of people. And I, I my heart just absolutely breaks every time I see a new crop of amazing journalists and editors and, and people working behind the scenes at different publications announcing that they all just got laid off. And I, I know there are other newsrooms that have started doing layoffs in the past week because I've been seeing people that I know announcing that they no longer have jobs. Um, but, you know, I think that the New York Times is in a unique, unique position here, where, as I said, they are still profitable. But I think that management is probably like, you know, trying to kind of predict where the economy is going to go. So their whole prerogative right now is to essentially give as little as they possibly can uh, under the justification that, you know, we are in economically uncertain times, yada, yada, yada. But the fact remains is that the people who make this magazine run are sorely underpaid. Um, many are underprotected, uh, and many are, uh, you know, they've had enough. They're 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 banding together. I mean, the New York Times tech workers unionized earlier this year, which kicks ass. And like I said, this is the first big walkout action since the '60s. So, um, you know, people are really taking a stand. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you for highlighting those other struggles. I definitely think that uh, the New York Times is getting an undue amount of attention. Not that they uh, they don't deserve it. The workers there. Um, but as you're alluding to, a lot of ground to cover right now with uh, strike activity, labor tension. Um, and you know what covers ground better than anything else? That's rail. Um, we Nice. We, <laughs> nice. <laughs> because of how trains work. I trains are clo very close to the ground. That's right. Uh, even more so than cars. Tires lift you up a little bit. But um, That's absolutely right, Andrew. Sure, man. We did do... Um, <laughs> 
You know episode. who else is running train right now? <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Wow. Warren Buffett. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll just Sorry. let that image seep into our listeners' heads. Sorry, it's, uh, been, a long, it's been a long week, guys. <laughs> uh, we're a very dumb podcast. You're right on brand. <laughs> uh, but we did we did have Jonah Furman on uh, to explain this back in September. Um, so our listeners should know about the difference between the uh, National Labor Relations Act and how, how the rail uh, industry is is mediated, uh, labor negotiations there. Um, but a lot has happened, of course, since sep- September. Um, could you maybe summarize what's happened in that time, uh, negotiations between industry workers and the president of the country and, and how um, how we got to this point uh, with the, the TA being rammed through and um, obviously not a good situation for, for the workers. But uh, if we could, you know, sort of squeeze this into uh, into a distilled um, summary for, for our listeners, what's what has been the situation over the past couple of months? Well, I mean, first and foremost, I just want to say that Jonah Furman is a punk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, if, I, if I ever catch that fool on the street, it's on site. Um, just kidding. Uh, Correct everything he said. You yeah, heard maybe. it here first. Uh, there's beef in every industry. I love yeah. Um, no, I mean, I'm I'm so grateful to Jonah for all the incredible work that he does. Um, and he's been, yeah, an invaluable resource throughout this whole uh like long, arduous, shitty uh process. Um, you know, it's been an honor to kind of uh be on the 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 front <laughs> the front lines, as it were, with with Jonah. My colleague Mel Buer, folks like Jeff Shirky at In These Times, you know, uh, Lauren Gurley at The Washington Post. Like, you know, we've been doing our best uh, throughout the year to, like, get people to care about this story. And, you know, frankly, I'm feeling like kind of despondent because I feel like, you know, there just wasn't enough. And and we still have so much ground to cover if we're going to kind of compete with the you know ruling class serving propaganda that is just spewing out of the vents of corporate media day in day out i'm sure we all saw like you know the kind of cnn uh uh clip montages of uh you know anchors just like basically holding up a baby and saying like, why do rail workers want to steal christmas away from this baby right and like it's just like you know, again, most people didn't even know about the crisis on the railroads until we were literally at the precipice of a potential rail shutdown, both uh, in September when you guys talked to Jonah and we were, yeah, like uh, uh, quite literally at like the, the 11th hour um, when a closed door tentative agreement was reached, um, you know, with the the help of Labor Secretary Marty Walsh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, um, the rail carriers and uh, union leaders, so on and so forth. And so, um, you know, since then, um, since that kind of moment in September when we, quote unquote, averted a national rail shutdown, um, that tentative agreement then got kicked back to the membership of the you know 12 different craft unions representing over 100,000 workers on the nation's freight railroads. I'm sure you guys went through all of that uh, with Jonah, so I don't have to kind of go into it. Um, But, you know, just for folks listening, a reminder, um, there are a number of different carriers like BNSF Railway, CSX, uh, Union Pacific. Um, They are not uh, in a competitive marketplace. They all essentially kind of conspire in a non-competitive 
like cartel. Um, they all have like their own territories around the country, their own rail lines. Um, no one's out here building a bunch of new railroad lines. So again, there's no competition. Um, the mergers and acquisitions have been just going haywire over the past 40 years. There used to be over 40 companies uh, operating on the, on the freight railroads. And now, like I said, there are just seven major ones and soon to be six. Um, and so, you know, they bargain as a unit, um, as do the 12 different uh, unions representing uh, workers on the freight railroads from uh, engineers and conductors to dispatchers and signal callers and machinists, so on and so forth. So these were all the kind of different um, people, you know, and, and union memberships who were reviewing uh, the tentative agreement that was reached in September over the past few months. <clears throat> and since then, um, you know, it's, it's, it's such a kind of like Rube Goldberg sort of system um, where, you, you know, if any one of the unions uh, decides to like full on reject the tentative agreement and a new compromise can't be reached and they vote to strike uh, that effectively could trigger a nationwide rail shutdown because the other unions, even if they have, say, voted to accept the tentative agreement or haven't voted yet, they all have clauses in their contract saying that they can't be forced to cross picket lines. And so if one union goes, the others all go because they won't cross that picket line. So that's what everyone was freaking out about in September. And that's what everyone was freaking about, freaking out about last week. Um, when, you know, they were reminded that we were approaching uh, another sort of cliff after which uh, strikes initiated by the rail unions or lockouts initiated by the rail carriers could legally begin. Um, so December 9th was like essentially the end of, you know, the additional cooling off periods, extended negotiation periods um, that had kind of um, like, you know, just, again, I don't have to go into the whole process, but um, when you got 12 different unions kind of voting along different timelines, you know, it, it, that's kind of the the deadline that we ended up with. Um, and so four of the <clears throat> pardon me, four of the 12 uh, railroad worker unions um, rejected that tentative agreement. And uh, in fact, a lot of the other unions that voted for it, um, I mean, those votes passed by pretty narrow margins. So there was a, a significant um, percentage of the rank and file across the 12 unions that uh, voted this thing down, even if like their their union as a whole ended up passing it. And what a lot of folks have been telling me and uh, over the past few weeks is that, you know, they were probably going to just vote for it because um, they expected that if they voted against it and we were approaching a strike, they essentially all knew that Biden and Congress were going to do what they did last week, which was um, step in as they are uh, able to do under the provisions of the Railway Labor Act. Um, they are able to essentially call the whole ball game if they want. Um, and Biden, uh, Mr. Pro-Union Biden, uh, you know, like 12 days before the strike deadline itself, uh, you know, beseeches Congress to uh, you know, side with the rail bosses and uh, force the workers to accept uh, the tentative agreement that was reached in September, even though uh, a majority of union workers in the rail industry had voted to reject that. So Biden just, you know, full on overrode the Democratic will of the rank and file. And then he, you know, got Congress to 
kind of basically, you know, push through legislation that would make this official, that would, like I said, force the unions and the rail carriers to accept the terms of the tentative agreement in September as the new as the terms for the new contract, um, which itself will expire or be up for renegotiation in 2025. We're actually closer to the beginning of the next bargaining session than we are the beginning of this one. And so a lot of rail workers that I'm talking to are they're feeling very demoralized and they're feeling very pissed off at Biden. Um, you know, they uh, feel betrayed. Um, you know, many of many of these people voted for Biden. Many believed in you know Biden when he said that he was going to be the most pro-union president that we've ever seen. Uh, and in fact, uh, a, a lot of the sort of um, bargaining strategy from the different rail unions kind of depended on taking Biden and the Democrats at their word, right? I mean, that is why the um, rail unions kind of pushed for the appointment of a presidential emergency board uh, back in July. I'm sure you guys covered that with Jonah. But the hope there was that Mr. Pro-Labor Biden would appoint a labor-friendly emergency board that could like really assess the the situation um, that workers have been, uh, you know, screaming about to anyone who will listen and, um, you know, offer recommendations for a new contract that actually sort of like address some of these systemic issues that are leading uh, railroad workers to quit in record numbers um, to, you know, have just like untold levels of stress on the job because <clears throat> they've been facing staff cuts year after year after year and having more work piled on to fewer workers uh, they have as everyone knows by now they don't have a single day of guaranteed paid sick time and so a lot of folks are going into work sick uh, even with covid because um, you know the railroads are, have just cut their operating costs so dramatically over the past years and decades not because they're hurting by the way financially this isn't this isn't like the auto industry in 2008 where, you know, they need to tighten their belt. Otherwise, they may go under. This is, as I said, an industry that is one of the most profitable in the entire country. Um, you know, people like Warren Buffett, who is the, the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway, which owns BNSF Railway, he didn't pick the rail like to invest in the railroads just on a whim. Like he knew the potential that this industry had to capture its market, um, to eliminate competition. Um, to to kind of always be able to rely on government assistance um, and to essentially extract as much profit as possible for uh, Wall Street shareholders. Like that is why, you know, Wall Street has taken such an interest in the railroads and they've completely taken over the entire industry and destroyed it. Frankly, they, they have they have really destroyed a lot of the supply chain. Uh, we are moving less freight than we should be, like significantly less freight. Uh, the ports are backed up. Uh, everyone's been talking about this for like the past year. Um, you know, that didn't just happen. It happened because the railroads realized they could either make money by moving as much freight as they possibly could, or they could move less freight. Um, while demand for moving freight is still there, which means that they could just 
do less work, but charge more for it. And that's what they've essentially been doing. They've been moving less freight as long as demand is up, as long as there are shippers who have to use the freight railroads, and there are plenty of them, then they have like essentially captured their market and they can charge whatever the fuck that they want, which they do. And then on the other side, what they do is they just constantly, as I said, they reduce their operating costs. So they cut labor costs. Um, you know, those trains that uh, are now like three miles long, they used to be shorter and there used to be like five people working on them. There were like front end and back end brakemen. There were engineers. There were conductors. Uh, there were firemen. Like, I mean, like there was a whole crew there and the railroads have been slashing those crews uh, along with like other parts of their workforce, like, you know, the folks who work on the track, right? Or the folks who, like I said, work in the dispatch office. They've been everywhere they can. They've been looking to uh, cut their labor costs and their labor force down to the absolute bare minimum so that they, you know, can reduce their labor costs to the bare minimum and they can use all of that excess profit um, to buy back their own fucking stock, right? So, like, this is, this is the crisis that I keep you know, yelling about that, like none, none of the, what um, Biden's presidential emergency board or the tentative agreement that was reached in September, none of that stuff addresses like the systemic ills that have created such a hellish situation on the railroads for railroad workers and their families, for shippers and uh, who have to use the railroads and even for people who live near rail lines, right? The day after Congress rammed this deal down workers' throats, uh, there were two derailments from Norfolk Southern alone, one off like this famous uh, uh, Stone Arch Bridge in Pennsylvania, another one in West Virginia. Like that shit is happening all over the country because, again, the railroads have figured out that like we can just not invest in, uh, that much in railroad maintenance. We can cut the staff, uh, the maintenance of way guys who are supposed to upkeep the railroads to make sure that like you know these heavy ass long ass trains don't just derail and spill chlorine all over like towns in the midwest and wipe out like entire populations like we're talking about really serious shit here but um the rail carriers are not taking it seriously because all they see is dollar signs and unfortunately uh, with the way things have gone um, there's literally no incentive for the rail carriers to change their ways because they always knew their ace in their back pocket was what just happened last week. They always knew that if we got to this point, Biden or whoever was president and Congress would get spooked. They would freak out about like the, the you know, the costs of to the U.S. economy of a railroad shutdown. Uh, and then they would side with the bosses and force the workers to accept a subpar deal. So this crisis is only going to get worse. And even though the media is kind of talking about how we, quote unquote, averted a catastrophe by by having Biden in Congress, uh, you know, force this deal down workers throats and and stop, uh, you know, the, the December 9th strike that we were expecting. What I would just say to people is that the crisis is already here. We haven't averted shit. As I said, the 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 issues that have led to this crisis are only going to get worse after this. And what I keep hearing from workers is that you're going to get the effect of a strike, whether you want one or not. It's not going to be as immediate of a disruption as everyone walking off the job on December 9th. But what we're already seeing is workers with 5, 10, 15 years of 
you know, experience on the freight railroads just saying, I'm out. I can't take it anymore. I can't take this industry anymore. I can't take my managers treating me like shit and talking to me like I'm a piece of trash anymore. I can't take not seeing my family anymore or not being able to make medical appointments or my parents' funerals anymore. So people are going to be leaving. And when you have such a highly, you know, you have so many highly skilled jobs on the railroads, like these guys have to you know, memorize like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages of federal regulations, operating codes, you know, schedules are changing all the time. They have to know every inch of the track that they're on. Like the the effect of that brain drain, because people are so burnt out by the business practices in this industry, because they are leaving um, and the railroad industry is already having a hard time hiring and retaining people because they treat people so badly, like that's only going to lead to more trains lying idle, more ports backed up, more shippers pissed off, more delays on essential goods and, and services. So it's really, it's really a clusterfuck. Yeah. And I just want to note, you know, of those four unions that voted the, the contract down, if I, unless I'm mistaken, they do represent a disproportionate amount of workers. And as you mentioned, um, the, the votes to uphold the agreement were very close. So it's a, a pretty strong majority of rail workers total that, uh, that were opposed to this, this agreement. Um, I'm wondering like, how did the, uh, how was Biden pushed on this? Because, you know, it seems like sick days is a pretty simple proposition. Um, the workers have been saying sick days, sick days, sick days. And somehow that just didn't get through it. It, it was, why was, um, Biden so much more sympathetic to the bosses on this question, and why were they so unwilling to budge on an issue that seems like it's probably pretty bad for business ultimately to have sick workers spreading disease and and sickness, uh, possibly to, to passengers and and making uh, the the business less efficient. Why why was this such a sticking point for for the bosses? Dark Brandon uh, wants more germs in the world. It's what he's fueled <laughs> off of. <laughs> Man, it's like, um, you know, it's a, it's an interesting kind of question because I have like, you know, some hypotheses. But, um, you know, frankly, when it comes down to it, you know, what I would say, because I know there, there's a lot of chatter going on right now about uh, what could Biden and Congress have done differently? Uh, whose interests are they really serving? Like what happens next? Is there still hope that these these essential workers uh, who who literally like hold up our supply chain can at least get one fucking day of paid sick leave like the 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 quote unquote sweetener that um was added to the presidential emergency board recommendations that came out in August uh when that deal was sort of sweetened up in September to avert a national rail shutdown um kind of the the big, one of the big compromises was like workers were going to get three like personal days uh, but they have to be like scheduled 30 days in advance and you can only take them between Tuesdays and Thursdays. So it's like, OK, so I guess you're not getting paid sick days, but if you're going to get sick, just uh, plan ahead 30 days and do it between Tuesday and Thursday. Like that's that's the kind of level of, you know, just spitting on the face of of workers that we're talking about here, which, again, is just baffling to me with Biden, because I'm like. This, this should be a political slam dunk. Like, you have such a clear-cut case of heroes and villains here. Like, who who is out there sympathizing with Warren Buffett, right? You know, and, and, and saying, like, oh, poor, poor Mr. Buffett needs to, you know, like, get a few more billion dollars out of this, you know. The, you know, like, when you have 
workers who again are are you know telling me and anyone who who will listen you know that they never get to see their their families that um you know their health is going to shit um that you know they they couldn't be there when a, a loved one died of covid like you know just really stark good versus evil stuff here and the 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 demand about sick days I think really took off because so many people just feel like that's so reasonable. Like, and, and most people I think are like, wait, they don't have that already. Um, and so I would say that, uh, you know, as, as others have also said, you know, like the, the dispute itself was never a, just about sick days. And in fact, a lot of the workers that, that I've interviewed on my show, working people or at the real news or on breaking points, you know what they what they have said is that like we we've never had sick days and in fact we didn't used to need them because of the scheduling system that uh you know we we had in place on the railroads when I hired on you know 10 15 20 30 years ago what people would say is just like you know we had enough workers at that time and we had good enough relationships with management at that time that you know if you're if you're tired if you're getting sick um, and you want to what's called mark off, which is basically just take yourself off the schedule. You could do that. You would just call in and say, like, I'm marking off like I needed I, uh, I, someone needs to take my assignment. And, uh, you know, managers would say, like, OK, give us a call when you're ready to come back on. And then the, the reserve board of um, folks kind of ready to fill in those missed assignments um, would just sort of fill them in um that's how things used to work on the railroads but again over the course of years and decades with um this sort of wall street led philosophy um you know of of cutting the operating ratio as much as possible and and extracting as much uh value from the operation as possible that's where you get like the institution of what's called precision scheduled rail railroading. We don't have to go into that. Basically, it's just a, a, a catchy industry term for all the fucking bullshit that I've been describing um, ad nauseum over the past 20 minutes. Um, just, you know, making the trains longer, more unwieldy, having fewer people work on them, um, you know, piling more work onto fewer workers, investing less in track maintenance and infrastructure, yada, 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 that is what precision schedule railroading means. It also means like integrating more technology um, to try to kind of give this sort of like uh, appearance that the operation is more efficient and more automated. But again, you listen to any railroad worker and they'll describe to you all the problems with these new technologies that have been integrated into their uh, system, so on and so forth. But I digress. The, the, the point is, is that um, you didn't need to have sick days in the past because of the way those scheduling systems operated and because of the the sort of status quo on the railroads, like I said, better relations with management, uh, more workers, so on and so forth. So as that started to change um, and as um, the rail carriers began to chop more and more of their workforce and then institute these like draconian attendance policies because they had to, right? It's like, if, if we have fewer workers and we no longer have the ability for some for an engineer to say, you know, what, I want to mark off. Can can someone else take my place? The answer from the railroads now is like, no, like we've cut everybody. So you have to stay at your post. And we're also going to shove this new attendance policy uh, into place, uh, which means that, like, if you don't take your post, 
um, if you don't answer your phone, um, and, and a lot of these engineers and conductors, I mean, they're, they're on call 24, seven, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Um, and so if you don't answer that phone, you get like so many points off your record knocked off and you could even just get straight up fired. And so, again, that's why you have people going into work sick. That's why you have people um, just run absolutely ragged, um, so on and so forth. And that's why the railroads are so averse to budging on the question of paid sick days, because it fucks with this oppressive business model. What they want to do is be able to. Uh, control uh, the the remaining workforce that they have, um, and and essentially shackle them to their uh, workstations, um, and like I said, have them on call at the beck and call of the railroads, three hundred sixty five days a year. That is that is like what they want their workforce to be, just sort of faceless meat bags that can be you know moved to wherever they need to be moved at any given time of the day regardless of their lives and families and circumstances so on and so forth so that is why the sick days ended up becoming such a rallying cry for the railroad workers and the public it's like it's it's a stand-in for a much larger problem but it is not the solution to the problem is, is how I would put it. And I think any railroader would say the same that, um, you know, the, 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 the paid sick days is at this point just kind of a tourniquet to, to try to stop some of the bleeding, to try to give workers at least some semblance of control over their schedules, which many feel right now they have absolutely no control over. Um, and it's very, very, sad but again we couldn't even get that we couldn't get that out of the rail carriers biden couldn't like you know be making this more of an issue um you know frankly when uh you know it comes to biden and the democrats and congress the the last thing i would say is that um so why couldn't they like do more i mean frankly because they didn't care about this until it was literally the 11th hour before a potential rail shutdown like these contract negotiations have been going on for three years and the bar and the carriers have been just bargaining in bad faith the whole time, just sitting with their arms crossed, not budging on any of the rail workers demands because they knew if we got all the way down to this point that Biden and Congress were just going to bail them out and give them everything that they want. So, again, what incentive do they have to bargain differently? And so if Biden and Congress and progressives like actually wanted to help workers I don't think I think there's only so much that they could do at this point when uh, they all just kind of have to start caring about it like two days or three days or a week before a potential rail shutdown. If they were actually paying attention for the past three years, if they were using the bully pulpit to expose the greedy, destructive practices of the rail carriers and to lift up the struggles that workers have been, uh, you know, speaking about that and have found such a hard time, like, you know, getting into mainstream media. If the if the politicians were actually helping to increase the pressure put on these rail carriers to actually bargain in good faith and to address worker systemic demands, maybe we would have ended up at a, in a different situation. But the fact is that, like, none of them really gave a shit. None of them were listening to, like, Surface Transportation Board Chairman Martin Oberman, who's been screaming for years, like, hey, these guys are destroying the supply chain and the workers. Is someone going to do something about this? And and yet we, we don't care about it until, like, we're at you know, the edge of the cliff, as it were. Well, that brings me to a, uh, uh, something I've been 
Very controversial question on the left now, um, but about the tentative agreement vote in in the House, um, which, you know, I saw, I just see the blurb, you know, the squad minus uh, Rashida Tlaib votes for this shitty agreement, uh, sparks a lot of outrage, not to say that that isn't warranted, um, but... uh, there's some context here that's pretty important, which is there's uh, the RWU, Rail Workers United, which, to be clear, is not a union, not union leadership. This is a group of rank-and-file workers um, who are radicals or calling for nationalization of the railways, and they come up with a, a legislative strategy. Um, what is that strategy uh, that the squad followed, and, and perhaps was it misguided? Was there something else that the, the squad, the progressives, should have done uh, differently? Well, you know, like this is this is definitely where I would defer to someone like Jonah because Jonah's like um, much more plugged into that world than than I am, right? I mean, or Jonah's plugged into both worlds. Like, so we're both talking to a lot of the same folks in the rail industry, uh, but I don't have a whole lot of friends on Capitol Hill. <laughs> Jonah, <laughs> Jonah does, right? Or at yeah, least people. Know I, now that Jonah. I moved out of DC, you have nobody. I got nobody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My one, my one ace in the hole is now <laughs> gone. Um, but you know, I, I guess I would. What I would say, uh, and I and I largely agree with the kind of assessment that Jonah gave um, when when he was on with some of the rail workers uh, on on Chapo, I think last week, um, is that uh, I think that like I don't think it's as complicated as people are trying to make it seem like. Like it was sort of like seventh dimensional chess um i i just think that there are different uh opinions within the different rail unions like i myself you know like i i've relied very much on the rank and file organizers who comprise uh you know the the organizing committee and and much of the membership of railroad workers united they have been incredible this whole year as i've been reporting on you know, the, this story, right? I mean, like even back in, in February, I started reporting on this when I learned that 17,000 workers at BNSF Railway were prepared to go on strike over the institution of one of these new draconian attendance policies. And they had that strike blocked by a U.S. district court, just like Congress just blocked all railroad workers from striking over this uh, contract dispute. Um, and in, in those cases, you're dealing with a lot of issues, right? Um, first off, it's very, very hard to get rank and file workers in that situation to speak on the record because they are terrified of losing their jobs. Um, and so I, I, I talked to a lot of BNSF railway uh, employees, uh, but they were not willing to go on the record. And I completely understood why. Um, and so, you know, like and with the the, the kind of unions, you're, you're essentially going to get well, we'll set you up with a, a union president, right? I mean, there are reasons for that. One, you kind of maintain message uh, uh, discipline, but also, you know, you have someone who's a, a little more protected, uh, maybe someone, you know, who isn't as vulnerable speaking to the press as like, you know, a rank and file engineer would be. So there's that. Um, but on top of that, um, you know, like, you know, the, 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 they're differing kind of opinions on strategy. When you talk to, I think, uh, you know, different memberships, different uh, leaderships in the different unions. Like we we've seen already that there is no one strategy here. If that were the case, then you wouldn't have had the kind of situation that you had after Biden's presidential emergency board released their recommendations in, in late August uh, in if when they did that, 
um, Railroad Workers United was calling for all the unions to sort of sign a pledge of like, don't make a decision on this until we all make a decision on this, because if we all start breaking ranks, it's going to fuck with everyone else's ability to, you know, renegotiate or, or put pressure on the carriers. Right. That's not what happened. Um, what you had um, once the presidential emergency board recommendations were released in August and a 30 day cooling off period began, um, you had a couple of unions like say, like, yeah, we'll accept this while others were still waiting to vote on it. And so when you get that sort of situation, the carriers are going to be like, oh, they accepted it, so everyone else should accept it, right? They're going to try to play one union off the other as they have been able to do over the past six months, both before the September deadline and after that deadline when the new tentative agreement was going back to the memberships to be uh, voted on for ratification, right? So that's all to say is that uh, anyone who like is thinking that there's one coherent strategy, um, you know, should look at the fact that like there's already on the level of like just sort of deciding what to do about the presidential emergency board recommendations, the tentative agreement. There's already a lot of difference in opinion and a lot of like dissension, you know, between the different unions that have put the 12 craft unions in a tough spot if they want to actually act in concert together as a, as a unit, <clears throat> And so I think that I give all that preamble to sort of say that I, I have to imagine that there were different, you know, members from different, uh, you know, different leaders of different unions kind of um, offering their suggestions to elected officials for what they thought was the best path forward. Um, again, I think that uh, like in the aggregate going into these negotiations, the hope of the the union leadership was that. Biden and Congress were as pro-labor as they said they would, which meant that they would get a better uh, outcome with the presidential emergency board. Or if we got to the point of a potential rail strike, that Biden would put pressure on the carriers instead of just siding with them and, and giving them everything that they that they wanted. Um, so that's the kind of situation that we're trying to wade into here and make sense of. And 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 then on top of that, like I said, you have a workforce of over 100,000 people. That's a big workforce. A lot of people with differing opinions. I've, I've talked to people from, uh, like I said, the, the folks that you're going to talk to from the Railroad Workers United, you know, they're going to tend to be the most active and engaged uh, and and even more radical folks, because that's that's why they kind of congregate. Right. And and. Uh, you know, that doesn't mean that they necessarily represent <clears throat> the, the the attitudes of everyone working on the railroads. I've certainly talked to people who are maybe more loyal to their uh, local union leadership or national union leadership than they are to, to RWU. And so they get kind of prickly when they when they when you talk to them about it. Uh, I'm not trying to start shit. I'm just really, again, <laughs> trying to emphasize that, like, you know, it, it's a big workforce and a lot of differing opinions there. And so I think that when it comes down to it. Uh, again, like we were we were talking about a situation that if anyone in Congress genuinely wanted to help, the answer is get involved in this before now. Right. I mean, because now that we're at this point, there's really only so much that you can do. And I think what Jonah said on Chapa was very apt where he said, like, we were essentially like this was fourth down. Uh, fourth and goal, the clock has run out, like this is your last shot to do something. And so when you're in that situation, because Biden was saying, you know, we need to force everyone to accept the TA from September, we need to avert a strike at all costs, like that's it. And so he Biden was not calling for 
you know, more sick days. Nancy Pelosi wasn't calling for more sick days. So I think the progressive caucus was essentially like, can we try to get sick days back on the table? At Even if it's a futile effort, can we at least like put it up for a vote? And uh, I guess the, the, the compromise was like, we're not going to, Biden was even saying this, he's like, we're not going to uh, like adjust the tentative agreement from September because reasons like he he kept making it sound like oh that's just gonna like lead to more negotiations but again i'm just like you're the fucking president like uh as as john tormy a great track worker from uh massachusetts who was on my podcast uh recently where i did a big railroader panel he was like i i find it hard to believe that the guy who controls our nuclear arsenal couldn't just put pressure on a few rail bosses and say, hey, give these fucking guys sick leave, right? Biden made it sound like, oh, my hands are tied. Uh, we can't add more stuff to the tentative agreement from September. That would cause chaos. And so we just got to force this deal through. And then to their credit, the you know Progressive Caucus, I think, like, you know, uh, made a stink and, and managed to get two bills um, kind of through the House, one that was um, – you know, forcing the the tentative agreement from September onto workers and carriers, and the other was at least a proposal uh, that would you know secure seven paid sick days for railroad workers. Frankly, from the beginning, I always expected that to be dead on arrival, and I think like most people in Congress felt the same fucking way. So it was a really kind of sad, and it felt like a very cynical spectacle to behold. Like again, I agree with Jonah that if there are people in Congress who actually had workers interests in mind this was probably the best that they could do at that given moment that doesn't make me feel like any better about it that doesn't make me think that uh you know they they couldn't have done more if they actually cared about this issue over the past three years instead of just trying to kind of patch together some sort of uh, 11th hour solution last week um, and so that's kind of, you know, where we are, like the strategy that you were asking about, Anders, like I know, like some folks were uh, like saying that uh, there's a lot of hearsay going on. Some people saying like, oh, this is what the rail union leadership was really kind of pushing uh, House Democrats to do was like split the bill, push it to the Senate and let's see if we can whip up enough votes. Um I don't know. I, I, I'm not talking to those people again. I can only just sort of see what I see from this side and talk to a bunch of the workers. And like my sense is that um, the general feel for from people is that this was a cynical move just to sort of save face, just to sort of make it seem like the dem the hearts of uh, elected Democrats bleed for the rail workers and they just want to go on the record saying that even if they know they're about to like you know, fuck them over and not get them any paid sick, de sick leave um, and give the rail carriers everything they want. That's the kind of feedback that I'm getting. Well, yeah, I mean, it seems like the punchline here is that this isn't going to be settled in Congress, not going to be settled in the White House. This is if there's going to be a, a reasonable solution, it's going to be through public and, and industrial pressure. Um, so I was as we're rounding out here, what do you think the, the future is here? Is there um, you, you mentioned that, you know, if it there may not be technically a strike, but it's going to feel like a strike. Um, what does 2023 have in store for the rail industry and for um, this this movement? I mean, it's really it. I, I really take um, to heart what uh, you know. Veteran workers like Marilee Taylor have been saying. If you guys haven't listened to Marilee Taylor, 
you're you're in luck, right? Because I think she kicks ass. Um, I uh, if you want to check out Marilee, um, you know, you may have seen her or heard her on on interviews. She's she was doing the rounds because she just she just retired from BNSF Railway after a like over thirty years as an engineer. You had her on uh, uh, Working People recently. I right? did. Yeah, yeah. So so she was on that panel that I mentioned that we published this past week, and I also interviewed her uh, at uh, on Breaking Points like a week or two ago. Um, but she's she's a uh, a firecracker. Um, she does not take shit from from the bosses. Um, and you would expect her, you know, a retiree who's who's seen over her career like the destruction of an industry that she loved, to be incredibly bitter. And in some ways, like she is, but she's also like very hopeful, as she keeps saying. She's like she's like I'm a, I'm glad to be alive right now because like it feels like there's more potential for change now than I've than there there has been at any other point in my career. And so like, I think like what I would, would really kind of say to people is to take that to heart because like in many ways, like this is, this is kind of like as good socialist Marxist, like, like the dialectic is, is, is heating up right now because what Marilee is describing as a, uh, a moment of potential is also a moment of great pain. And, and those two things go together because as we've said here, the crisis the Wall Street-induced crisis on the railroads that is driving workers into the ground, that is driving the supply chain into the ground. Um, after this whole saga, that's only going to get worse. Um, and so that's where the sort of the quote-unquote contradictions are heightening, right? Like the same dynamics that are leading uh, this vital industry uh, to experience such a crisis that are lead that is leading to so much anger and resentment and even uh, uh, exodus. Um, from this industry by the rank and file like that's only going to increase and the rail carriers want it to increase because in their mind this is again they're, they're just going in the right direction because the more that workers quit um, the slower uh, we are moving freight the more that the carriers can try to justify their long desired wish to reduce those train crews to one person or even no people, right? They 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 want to automate everything, but railroad workers are like, that's not going to fucking happen. Like we are so far away from that with the infrastructure that we have, with the trains that we have, it's just not going to happen. But that is ultimately what the carriers want to do. They want every boss wants to cut their labor costs to zero if they could, whether that is um, because your workers are slaves that you don't have to pay, or you can replace them with robots, right? Or you can you know use. Uh, uh, exploitable, you know, undocumented workers or workers, you know, in other parts of the country where you can pay them like two cents an hour, right? That is the prerogative of capital. And that is the direction that the carriers are going in. And so you're going to see these these kind of tensions continue to heighten. You're going to see these contradictions continue to get uh, more intense. And, and that that is going to, in turn, stoke uh, more greed from the side of the carriers and more anger and mobilization from the side of the workers. So what happens then? I think the answer to that question depends on what we all do right now. Um, people are always asking me, like, you know, where does the movement go from here? What, you know, what are you hearing? I'm like, you tell me. You tell me what happens now, right? Because... You know, we may not we're probably not going to see a wildcat strike, uh, you know, in early December. Uh, I know a lot of people are asking about that, but like it, it probably won't happen. If it does, 
then you better get your ass out to a picket line and stand in solidarity with those workers because they're going to have the police coming after them. They may even have the National Guard coming after them. Uh, Congress could fire everyone just like Reagan fired the air traffic controllers in the 80s. Like if we want to see a a rank and file like rebellion in the form of a wildcat strike, we are asking workers to put a lot of faith in us to be there to support them when it counts the most. I don't think we're there yet. Um, because I think that a lot of people are just sort of rebuilding those muscles of solidarity. They are just beginning to connect the different struggles from Starbucks workers organizing and facing scorched earth union busting campaigns to coal miners uh, still on strike in deep red Alabama. They've been on strike for over 600 days at Warrior Met Coal, but they are looking at the workers at CNH Industrial in Iowa and Wisconsin, they are looking at the the strikers at the University of California or the part-time faculty at the new school and the students who just like occupied the entire fucking school uh, yesterday. Like that's another like intense struggle. But people are starting to connect these struggles like they are they are showing up to different picket lines. The workers involved and the organizers involved are communicating more with each other and so like that is the work that needs to happen now because if we end up in a similar situation to this we'll be more prepared for it right you know Mm -hmm. we will be ready it's like macaulay culkin saying right you know you got to booby trap the house baby like you can't (laughs) just you know like be caught off guard when the wet bandits show up you know, you got to have a plan in place. And so I think it's incumbent upon all of us to start that work now. And I know there's a lot of movement happening on the railroads. I'll stick to that um, just to kind of close out. And again, it's it's not all Railroad Workers United. I've talked to folks within their unions who are saying, I'm running for uh, office in my local because, you know, I'm dissatisfied with how this whole process has played out, but I don't want to quit. And I don't want to, you know, just kind of keep standing by the sidelines like I want to run for union office. Right. I think I can change things that way. Um, and right now, like uh, there there are calls for for national uh, uh, demonstrations um, next week that are coming from um, I think it's the um, the two big unions, um, the engineers and conductors unions, the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen and the Sheet Metal Air Rail and Transportation uh, Workers, um, Smart TD. They're calling for kind of solidarity next week. There's even going to be a demonstration in D.C. So, like, there is rank and file movement. There is sort of um, kind of strategy being talked out right now or talked through. I think uh, what you said, Andrews, is right, that um, – what I'm hearing from folks, again, this is just my my kind of conveying to you guys what I'm hearing from all the different people I'm talking to is is I hear way less about a wildcat strike than I hear about a people like leaving the industry and b um, people kind of taking the frustration that they feel right now after how this is all played out after feeling betrayed by Biden and Congress. What they are saying is like we are less than two years away. Like we're like 22 months away to um, the end of this contract. And so we need to start like mobilizing our membership. Now we need to start like getting ready to fight harder for a, a better contract in 2025 now, because now the public is at least more aware of what we're going through. Um, and, you know, like we uh, know where we stand with the current administration and, and with Congress, yada, yada, yada. So we can kind of, 
you know, approach this in a more strategically sound way than we did this past round. So I think that um, there is a lot to be hopeful about, as as Marilee Taylor keeps saying, you know, but, you know, I don't want us to be, you know, to have any sort of like misconceptions about what this period is going to mean. Like I said, when the dialectic kind of heats up, when those contradictions continue to intensify, when polarization, you know, the 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 kind of the social consequences of, you know, these these intensifying contradictions start to kind of manifest in in, you know, ever crazier ways like like an increasingly fascistic far right movement in this country like that polarization is very scary, but again, it means that the future is up for grabs. It means that people are intensifying their fights to take hold of the world that they live in and shape it in the way that they see fit. We need to be mobilized and prepared to do that ourselves. And I think the more that we contribute to building a broader sense that there is a working class movement that is independent of either political party there is there are people on the left and and in even you know on the center and the right but there are people whose main commitment is to the dignity of of their fellow workers and the 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 livability of our shared planet like if we band together around those sorts of principles and show up to picket lines and donate to strike funds and solidarity funds and constantly kind of hold companies like Starbucks accountable for what they're doing to workers. Chipotle, we got to hold them accountable for doing the same shit, like closing the store in Maine that was the first to file for a union election um, or the union busting from Trader Joe's or Home Depot. Like we need to be the ones to constantly keep that pressure up because the more that we do, the more that working people around the country are going to feel emboldened and supported and more able to kind of take matters into their own hands and and to organize their, their workplaces and to take direct action. That is the hopeful thing that I think we've seen. We are recording this podcast one year after the historic win at the Buffalo Starbucks that became the first store out of like the, the 9,000 in the country to, to unionize the first corporate owned store. And you know, it's it's every Starbucks worker I've talked to for the real news for working people over the past year has said it's like when we saw that we thought, why not us? Right. When we saw the public response and the and the support, we thought, well, maybe the public will support us, too. Right. And so that has d directly contributed to the historic wave of union election filings. Uh, we're now over 250 stores that have successfully voted to unionize over the past year, which is incredible. But because of Starbucks's ruthless, relentless, scorched earth, union busting campaign, uh, something that is very concerning is that we have seen a precipitous drop in new union election filings at Starbucks stores mm. in the second half of 2022. And it's because what Starbucks is doing is working. It is demoralizing people. They are delaying. They are frustrating. They are firing people. They are kicking them off their health care by underscheduling them and, and harassing them at work. And if if we as the public are not constantly there for them, then they're going to start giving up. They're going to start leaving. So as I said, this is an exciting moment. There is a lot of energy. People are looking forward to 2025 for the railroads, but we're also looking forward to UPS contract negotiations in the summer. The longshore workers in the West Coast are in the midst of their contract fight. There's a lot of opportunity for us to continue to build working class solidarity and working class power, but we have to keep showing up. We have to keep our eye on the ball 
because we know that at the end of the day, you know, no one else is coming to save us, not Biden, not Ocasio-Cortez, and certainly not the fucking Republicans. It's just us. Well, yeah, on that note, um, we'll link to several of the rallies happening on Tuesday, over 10 cities throughout the country, uh, December 13th from 1 to 3 p.m., uh, we'll link to that. But Max, thank you so much for, for joining us again. Uh, where can people find this really crucial work that you're doing about the about these struggles? Well, thanks so much for, for having me on, guys. And uh, yeah, sorry I, I talk so much. <laughs> but uh, it was it's uh, always a, an honor to come on and chat with y'all. Yeah, and, happy to uh, let you cook. Yeah, go nice. off. <laughs> where, uh, where can we plug your shit? I mean... <laughs> um so you can find me uh, uh on twitter at maximilian m-a-x-i-m-i-l-l-i-a-n underscore a-l-v um please 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 um follow the real news network uh you can find us at therealnews.com you can support us we're in our end of year fundraiser right now it's because of our viewer support you know we don't put shit behind paywalls we don't do ads it's all coming from um people who support us it's because of that that I can interview all these railroad workers and Stephen Janice and Taya Graham can report on the vi- the victims of, you know, the police industrial complex. And we can, you know, have the Chris Hedges report every Friday. Like it's because of your guys support that we're able to do that. So if you can, please go donate to the real news. Help us keep our work going. Check out my podcast working people where I interview workers uh, every week. And uh, if you want something to read for the holidays, maybe buy my book, The Work of Living, which is a collection of interviews I conducted with 10 workers at the end of year one of COVID. Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you again. Um, let's be in touch. Thanks, guys. Wow, that was an interview. Yes, I learned a lot. Uh, Cut that out. Do a better one. (laughs) I just didn't realize we were recording. (laughs) Nope, leave it in. You're editing. The cat's on the table now. (laughs) Yeah, the cat made me hurt my hand on your lampshade. I was wondering what happened. Jake pulled his hand back very suddenly in a way that worried I was getting sued. This is Waffles' fault. (laughs) Yeah, DJ Waffles back in the studio producing the show. Let him cook. Let him cook. He's got his headphones on. Wow. We've learned a lot today. But I think the real question is, what are our various projects we'd like to plug here at the end of the podcast? Well, if you enjoyed learning about unionization, the labor movement, struggles, etc., we have a fun episode behind the paywall about Harry Bridges, who uh, is, Harry a, Bridges. Uh, is a rancid song about, and uh, he's a fascinating figure um, of the 20th century uh, you can learn about on patreon.com slash America. That's absolutely right, Anders. And if you like uh, patreon.com slash America, you will love the Game Boys live stand-up show next Friday, December 16th, because who's on it? It's podcast legend Jake Flores, people. That's right. I'm on it. That's right. It's a big deal. Also, it's my show, so I'm on it, too. Anders not on it this time, but we'll get him on there later. He's, he lives here now. I'm a Game Boy. He's a Game Boy. Anders loves video games. That's me. He keeps it to himself, real quiet, like, but he's obsessed with the things. And so you got to go get tickets for that. Link also in the bio, along with all the helpful things you can do. You can also come to the stand up comedy show. And uh, I'll see you there. I'm on that show. You should come to that show. You should also come see me on tour with Nishkashu Bali in January and listen to my other podcast while you're mad, even though we're on hiatus right now because Luisa is on vacation. Uh, Plug for Luisa's vacation. 
Give, give it up for Luis's vacation. Um, give it up for the venue real quick. Man, I think that's it. I think that's a lot of podcasts. I'm going to go eat an entire Timothy Chalamet. Yeah, this cat's <laughs> trying to destroy my computer. Let's, you got to go. <laughs> yeah. All right. She crushed out. It is finished. Oh, sorry.